suddenly we we no longer have schools operating the way they operate, we realise there's all these other things, all these social purposes, social functions, which were an absolutely crucial part Sorry. of the experience of school. And so there needs to be a, a rethinking of our priorities and our a renewed sense of, of purpose whenever we get back to school. So all those all those things are going to have to be addressed. It's going to make us rethink some of the things that we've been we've been encouraged to to forget about. Hello, Cormac Vanny here, and I'd like to extend a warm welcome to all our listeners to the Hip Psychology Mastering Your Craft podcast. This is our third series. And we will focus heavily on education in this series with a number of interviews with different individuals working within education, in particular in light of the times that we currently face in relation to COVID-19. Education is an area that we work heavily within, having supported over 100 schools in the last two and a half years across areas such as well-being, resilience, motivation, study skills and coping with exam stresses. We work with pupils, staff and parents. So to find out more about what we do, we can be followed on Twitter at Hip Psychology or if you want to send an email to, to ask anything in particular, our email address is info at hippsychology.com. Today's guest is Professor Tony Gallagher, who works out of Queen's University, Belfast. This is a podcast I thoroughly enjoyed. And Tony covers a number of different topics, including the challenges and priorities from Tony's perspective in relation to parents and teachers who are dealing with both remote learning and homeschooling. We also look at what the transition into school after this time might look like. We explore the relationship between crisis and change and what changes may result from this time in relation to both education and society as a whole. We also delve into the area of leadership. So without further ado, I'd like to jump into the podcast and welcome Professor Tony Gallagher to the Hip Psychology Mastering Your Craft podcast. I'm delighted to be joined in our podcast, the Hip Mastering Your Craft podcast, with Professor Tony Gallagher from Queen's University of Belfast, who's a professor in education. Tony, thanks so much. I'm, I'm really excited about what we're going to uncover in the next while. My pleasure to be here. Good, good to talk to you. Thank you. Um, Tony, I suppose at the present time, we've met with a situation which is really beyond extraordinary. We can't always control what's happened to us. We can't always control the situation, but what we do have power of control of is, is a response. How have you seen the response to this, the up-to-date in terms of from those people within education? Oh, well, suppose the, um, in, the initial, in the initial days, I thought uh, teachers and schools responded absolutely magnificently. Um, it seems like a time ago, but in that first couple of weeks, there was uh, quite a bit of confusion over what was going to happen. Uh, whenever uh, schools closed in the Republic, but there was a decision not to close them in uh, Northern Ireland. There was a bit of confusion as to whether uh, the decision was going to be made or when it was going to be made. But at one point it became clear that they were going to close at some point, but no one was sure exactly when. And it was amazing to see on social media the number of teachers who suddenly came on uh, preparing and moving it online, talking, sharing resources with other teachers, mm-hmm. engaging with starting to prepare for what they knew was coming without knowing exactly when it was coming. While at the same time, there was all sorts of concerns and worries about how this was going to work. 
so the response was, uh, in the immediate term, was incredible. Then the decision was made, the schools were closed, and again, you saw the same uh, sort of uh, amazing activity by teachers to try and cope with this new world that they suddenly found themselves in and trying to learn new ways of doing things, keep in touch with young people, trying to give advice to parents. So it was extraordinary. Things have sort of settled down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you would expect the, um, they found a way of doing things. Uh, there was a, a, a second stage of concern whenever there was a decision made to to keep schools, some schools open for the children of um, essential workers. And uh, that that caused a bit of conversation for a while because the, there were certain uh, uh, decisions made without, it looks like too much consultation with um, uh, principals or, or teachers. Um, and I think that was a bad idea because some of the ideas that were being put out weren't terribly sensible. And if there had been consultation with some principals, then they might have got a bit of a reality check and some of the things that they had considered. So, uh, and now we're at another stage actually where there's another conversation beginning to open up um, and you can start to see lots of teachers online talking about this. And that is uh, uh, conversation shifts towards the possibility of easing some of the lockdown restrictions and reopening schools uh, or some schools as an initial part of that process. Again, you see, I'm seeing a lot of very sensible conversation from teachers online saying, okay, if you're going to do this, these are the sort of things we need to think about. These are the sort of things we need to put in place. So, yeah, I mean, overall, I think the response of of teachers has been extraordinary. And it's a demonstration to me of their professionalism, their expertise, and their commitment to the the welfare of the the young people in, in their care. I mean, generally, the response in society has been, I think, very good. Uh, I don't know if you remember at that early stage, there was um, quite a bit of chat drawn on behavioural science as to whether it would be possible to maintain social distance rules, to maintain conditions of a lockdown. By and large, uh, people have responded very well. And so I think that's quite good too. And that's quite a good harbinger for the future because um, there's no doubt, we'll talk about this later on, but there's no doubt whenever this whole thing ends and we transition into a, a new normality, things will be different, mm-hmm. uh, behave differently. And it's going to take some, there's going to be some hard and difficult issues that need to be thought about and decisions to be made um, and it's going to take quite a lot of social solidarity to try to make sure we that our new normality is something that actually works for for everyone yeah no i think there's a there's a lot of power in what you said there just i suppose um from my point of view just the, the public perception i think of teachers um, will change greatly as well you know even, oh, yeah. I mean, what, even like i know yeah, myself what, what, like of a friend um who's who's ready to who's ready to home expel his child at the minute so just i think there's there's going to be a great sense of empathy there but well the number of people who are coming on uh, social media saying now that i've been looking after my child at home and trying to school them uh, i think teachers should all be given a gigantic pay rise and uh, you know, those because i mean i think that's that's exactly true people realized just what the, the part in part they got a bit of a glimpse uh, as to the role that teachers play mm-hmm. and the importance of our schools as sort of key civic institutions in our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt this, this sort of the status and standing of, of teachers has risen immensely as a consequence of all of this. That's that's very, very true. Um, and Tony, I suppose we're hearing two terms now that are coming to the fore more and more often is the idea of like remote learning and homeschooling. In, in, in terms of both those from a, a teaching point of view and a parental point of view, where do you think the, the priorities should lie? Well, the, um, uh, there has been a lot of chat about homeschooling, and there's a very there's a small uh, sort of uh, group of parents who do homeschooling in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland. 
it's a, it's a phenomenon which exists in many different countries. It tends to be quite a small number to it, but it does exist. I have to say, my uh, whenever parents ask me about this, how do I homeschool? My reaction is you don't. Mm-hmm. Don't try a teacher. Don't try to recreate the conditions of school in the household. Uh, it's not going to happen. It's uh, you, you, you don't just become a teacher by having been at school yourself. There's going to be deficits in this period in, in terms of where young people are. That's just a, an inevitable consequence of things. Schools and teachers are putting a lot of stuff online. They're providing work packs. They're doing all sorts of making all sorts of stuff available uh, for children to, to work with. Um, and parents should make as best use of that as they can. Uh, but they shouldn't try to recreate school in home uh, in, in the home. They should try to, I think, develop a routine, give give young people some sort of sense of routine in the day. Try and keep them connected and engaged at some level uh, with learning. <clears throat> but um, there should also be time for fun. There should be time for creativity. Um, and this is an opportunity to learn all sorts of other life skills that will mm. be really important in the future. And the one that uh, I think of our so many of our students in university. One of the most important life skills that many young people could learn in this situation is how to cook and bake, because that will. There's, there's, I'm amazed at the number of sort of uh, the uh, younger generation who rely on bought in me. <laughs> this is an opportunity for a new generation to learn the whole art and wonder and wonderfulness of cooking. <laughs> I'm going to have a disclaimer there, Tony. I've done a, few, a series of a number of short videos last week, and one of the things that was talking around was like like uh two weeks ago i learned how to cook curry and sponge cake for the first time so um <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but uh, so it's i mean there's this there's opportunities like that to try and get a little bit of uh, sort of fun into the day yeah. and to young people busy and i think that's much more important than this idea of homeschool mm-hmm. homeschool you're not you know there's some parents are worried about gcse and gce the a-level exams the exams are cancelled they're not going to happen so mm. they shouldn't be sort of trying to fret about focusing young people on, on those processes. Um, so uh, you know, there, there's going to there's a there's a, a, a job of work about keeping keeping young people busy and active and doing things, so exercise, getting outdoors, particularly in this the weather at the moment. It's nice and sunny to so get some exercise. Those sorts of things are more important than worrying about all the books. Mm-hmm. Uh, keep them engaged with learning, connect with some aspects of this, but don't don't uh, go for overkilling this at all. Remote learning is is just lots to talk about it. The number of meetings that I now spend uh, staring at a screen is interesting. It's I have to say it's not great. I don't like spending so much time staring at the screen, although it does like certain things to keep function, which is which is quite important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've been doing quite a lot in terms of putting material online and using. We're quite lucky in Northern Ireland with the C2K system in schools, uh, sort of an overarching infrastructure for the uh, ICT infrastructure for the schools. Which and the fact that that is kept up and as far as I'm aware kept up and kept running in circumstances where it must be under quite a lot of pressure it's all very good one of the things that it has exposed though and this is more of a sort of a negative it has exposed just how deep the digital divide is because whenever we say you know use your computer at home connect up to the internet check on the school website it turns out quite a few kids mm-hmm. don't have access yeah. to computer at home and don't have access to the internet and this goes came through very very forcefully there was a, a report carried out in the republic uh, issued just a week or two a very quick survey of a large number of primary schools to try and get a, a quick sense of how um, 
they were dealing with the immediate consequences of this crisis and the closure of schools. And it was a sort of an image that emerged out of this is that there was a portion of young people who households were well set up for all of this. They were using computers, they're on the net, everything was fine. They were just uh, going on uh, without too much disruption. There was another group of households where there was some level of access, but there was a lot of confusion and no one was mm-hmm. quite sure how to use it and there's another set of households where it just didn't exist and trying to maintain any level of contact with the young people was proven to be extremely difficult so so the digital divide uh, that inequality in our system has been has been highlighted by this this experience um, something we need to think about whenever we get back um, because sometimes we make assumptions about what young people have access to at home that have proven to be just not not and, and uh, what do you think can be done in relation to that Tony? well we have talked for years uh, about uh, trying to deal with the consequences of disadvantage there's a lot of government initiatives and policies in place although to be honest i don't think many have been really properly evaluated to see whether they're they're, they're effective there's lots of, of special initiatives are put in place uh sometimes they're quite short-lived um evaluations say they're successful and in the end and um, things seem to revert back pretty much to as they were before so it's been an ongoing it's been an ongoing discussion uh, around how we try to mitigate the consequences of social disadvantage in relation to educational outcomes even with the the new decade new opportunity document which has helped to uh, sort of provide a program for their our new shared government uh, executive that was highlighted as a particular theme this experience has uh, reminded us just how deep the, that problem is uh, in this particular area in terms of uh, just simple access if you're in this sort of emergency situation so it it, it just means that the issue has got to, got to be taken much more seriously yeah. even more seriously whenever we get back uh, and we need to think about it in much sort of broader terms it's the same i think we're seeing the same thing in the university um because the universities are quite well geared up in terms of virtual learning environments and the levels of uh, ict infrastructure that we have but um uh, and not just in, in Northern Ireland, not just in the UK, but in lots of other places, we're seeing uh, the sudden realisation that lots of students don't have access to, uh, to, to facilities that people sort of assume the, the, in the modern world they did have. Yeah. Yep. So there are real, real issues there to be addressed afterwards. Yeah, and I think um, that transition back into school is going to be interesting what support do you think is going to be needed um in terms of for the the children themselves and also from teachers and schools yeah well the 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 this again this report from the, the republic has identified um concerns about uh, some young people feeling a little bit lost um and uh, lonely mm-hmm. you see reports from other places with older kids the teenage kids who um, are missing the sort of uh, contact that they would normally have yeah. with their people. Uh, obviously, on one level, they're they're a luckier generation with mobile phones and uh, and social media. They can they can keep in touch in a way that wouldn't have been possible a couple of generations ago. But I think there's an increased realization that uh, chatting on FaceTime isn't the same as standing in the same space and and uh, talking directly or hugging one another. Um, so there are there are bound to be some issues around um, those sorts of welfare considerations, uh, sort of mental health considerations. There's just bound to be a stack of those issues that uh, that come up and have to be dealt with whenever we're transitioning back to uh, uh, to normal school. 
it's also a reminder that uh, because all these things are becoming very evident, it's also a reminder that school isn't just about squeezing qualifications out of kids. Mm-hmm. Um, in an article in the Guardian on this just uh, last week, which was um, looking at some of the changes that have been introduced over the last decade or so, where there has been a, uh, and I think in here more generally in the UK rather than specifically in Northern Ireland, there's been a cutting back on a lot of these sort of well-being measures. Uh, with a, an increased nar- and narrowed focus on qualifications as if that was the most important part of what education is all about. And suddenly, we, we no longer have schools operating the way they are, we realise there's all these other things, all these social purposes, social functions, which were an absolutely crucial part Sorry. of the experience of school. And so there needs to be a, a rethinking of our priorities and our a renewed sense of, of purpose whenever we get back to school. So all those all those things are going to have to be addressed. It's going to make us rethink some of the things that we've been we've been encouraged to to forget about mm-hmm. to some extent over the, the past number of years. Um, uh, but then the bigger issue is how things are going to change because um, after after every sort of crisis there uh, there has been behavioural changes. Think of nine eleven. Uh, the difference that made to air travel, um, the, the additional security arrangements you had to go through to get on an airplane, the things you could take onto the plane, the things you couldn't take onto the plane, um, the time that was involved in all of that. There's behavioural changes arising from that. There's behavioural changes arisen from other things as well. There are going to be behavioural changes arising from this whole experience. Partly it's going to depend whether they ever develop a vaccine, because uh, if they don't, then we're going to have to find some way of learning to live with this virus or whatever mutated form it, it comes in comes into. But as someone was saying the other day, I mean, if, if we're in a situation where we don't have a vaccine, people will probably think twice before getting onto an aeroplane again, just simply because of the potential risk in, in that situation. Um, and there's lots of other things I'm sure are going to come out that uh, we have to rethink some things that we took for granted. I'm not sure at this point exactly what they're going to be, but there's there's bound to be uh, sort of changes. Even there might be things about uh, distance, about the way we maintain a little bit of distance between one another for safety reasons. All those things are, are we're going to have to grapple with them. There's a lot of chat just today, in fact, about um, again a self prompted by the exit strategy. Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, we may have to do is to have a lot more monitoring of uh, who we engage with. Uh, there's talk about some countries have already started to use apps to follow people and maintain some indication of their health status so that it's, uh, you can maintain um, uh, people know when they need to maintain a little bit of distance in order to keep themselves safe. That comes with huge civil liberties consequences, huge privacy issues. But we may have to we may have to tackle all these sorts of things. You know, that may be the new normality that we that we uh, have to learn to live with. Very, very difficult, very, very challenging issues. But um, I strongly suspect in the slightly longer term, those are the sort of things that we're going to have to start thinking about. Yeah, it seems to be like a, a plethora of just it's just different just different changes that, like as you say or or new normality there. It, yeah, if you imagine two months ago that the only way we could have a conversation was like this, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the uh, uh, you go to the shops whenever, as irregularly as you can when you need to, and if you take a walk, um, you, you can allow one walk a day. In some countries, where like in the Republic, you're supposed to stay within two kilometres of your home. In Israel, you're 
stay within 100 metres of your home. Um, and three months ago, this would have just been inconceivable. But here we are. And uh, so good, goodness knows what the world is going to be like whenever this, this crisis is eventually over. Suppose on the bright side, people can go to work in their shorts now. So it's uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. well. There's there's no doubt we'll all become a lot more proficient in online engagement. There's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, in universities, we've been talking for years about how we, whether or not we should shift to online programs and how it should be done and when it should be done. And suddenly, in the space of a few days, we did it because we had to do it. The uh, and that doesn't mean you sort of you, you take this decision out to shift everything onto online uh, but certainly the the potential of this is going to be um, thought about in a new in a new light um, and ways in which we deliver education and may well be thought thought about quite differently in this consequence of this whole situation sometimes it takes a crisis to uh, sort of tear down, taking for granted assumptions uh, and start people thinking thinking anew. But it's really important that in doing this, we we do it with a, a clear sense of, of values and purposes. Because one of the things that's come true in this whole thing very, very strongly, immensely strongly, is the sense of social solidarity, which has developed. You can see this with teachers in different schools sharing resources and, and working with each other. You see this in the sort of support that people are given to the uh, the NHS workers and care workers. Uh, you see this in the way that communities are helping to look after uh, older members of the community who can't get out of the shops or and it's not safe to go to the shops. There's, there's an immense wave of social solidarity uh, and that's something I think is going to be to try and hold on to and to retain uh, once we get through this whole thing. Yeah, actually, I've, um, I would quote um, in the staff development workshops that I'll ever would quote Sir John Jones you know Sir John Jones he's a guy yeah I do yeah, yeah. Br- brilliant man I could listen to him all yeah, day yeah um, I was speaking a few times yeah but I would quote him it's, and I, just, I think it's just the profound line he came out with at, at one of the events it was um, happened to be where he was delivering and it, it's better to work smarter together than harder alone and I just I think that's yeah. I think you're seeing absolutely yeah the power in that absolutely Tony you've done a brilliant article I read on on Queen's website about, and you mentioned again. I think you've, you've alluded to it there about the relationship between crisis and reevaluation. You went a wee bit deeper, saying about the the possibly the reevaluation of the skills needed to be a teacher and how they were assessed. Could, could you maybe go into a wee bit more depth on that? Because it's something I find very interesting. Yeah, well, it's something that's that's it, it's been. A- Concern in a number of levels for quite a, quite a few years because the uh, partly because of the the body of assumptions that have helped to influence government policy generally uh, for quite a while now are all foc- all very much a sort of a uh, focused on competition about winning about uh, performance uh, it's all about individuals um, the uh, and it sort of has driven people towards a world where. It looks as if the only thing that's really, really important is to do, uh, like in education, get as many qualifications as you possibly can. And it's a race in which you're racing against everyone else. Um, and it is almost like a sort of a slightly doggy dog world. The, uh, and I've been worried about that for an awful long time because there's always, there's always, uh, there's been lots of debates about what education is for. And obviously getting qualifications for individuals is an important part of that because that helps to give open doors for people to provide opportunities. But education is about has to be uh, about a lot more than simply uh, getting uh, young people qualifications. Um, and a key part of it is the the social purpose of education, building a sense of being a member of a community, a member of society, building a sense of being a citizen 
in society uh, and participating in the democratic processes and helping to shape and influence the way society society develops. School is a very important part of the process of socialising young people into that sense of being part of society. Uh, and there's all sorts of interesting and complicated and challenging issues that, that come with that, particularly in a place like Northern Ireland because of our history, because of the, the divided nature of our society and because of the, um, uh, the sort of the challenges that we've had to face dealing with the legacy of the past. Uh, for me, these sorts of issues are even more important. Um, a lot of the work that I do is, is in, in divided societies where these issues are, are quite prominent. But oftentimes you get the impression that they're really not given the significance that they ought to be given within education systems. The, this particular experience, um, this situation has highlighted the, I think, the limitations of the notion of teachers as basically uh, there to ensure that the, the young people uh, that are under their care get loads and loads of qualifications. Uh, the social purpose, the sort of the, uh, the welfare role that the teachers play um, with young people has become hugely evident now that schools are no longer operating um, and there's loads of other types of support and levels of support the teachers have to have to try to provide as best they as best they can um, i think um, there will there will be a reevaluation of some of those i think that narrowed purpose that education was given and with this sometimes apparent fixation on qualifications as the thing that seems to be the most important thing, that high performance is the only thing that counts, that we will need to, need to rethink, need to rethink the, the, the sort of the social and civic role that educate plays at all levels. And that's where the, the spirit of social solidarity plays, plays a part here, this notion that we're all in this together, that it's not just about me doing well, but it's about us doing well. And that involves a sort of a, a view of society which is much more connected and networked uh, rather than uh, a view of society which is about trying to climb to the top of the pile and enrich yourself as much as possible. Yeah, I suppose when you're speaking there, I've been reading a book recently from Daniel Goleman on he's a psychologist from America, but he argues that actually emotional intelligence is a greater indicator of success than than IQ. So th he talks around yeah. things like teaching children to become more self-aware, teaching them to develop empathy, teaching them to understand how to build relationships, because ultimately when they get into the workplace, they're the underpinning skills that allows them to have ultimate success. Yeah, yeah. one of the things I did do uh, was a colleague uh, teach some programs on uh, leadership in Queens. And one of the things that's really important here is this idea of emotional intelligence as a key aspect of leadership. Because one of the things that effective leaders need to be able to do is to understand the people that are working, understand what's driving them, understand what their concerns are. It's a it's a good reason why this sort of the the, the very the older model of a top down leadership about leaders being people who can who can say strong things and tell people what to do with simple clarity um, doesn't really work because um, if you're in, not in, in most countries. Age, <laughs> Well, well, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's one of, one of the interesting discourses around the early stages of this COVID crisis was a suggestion that uh, authoritarian states were better able to deal with it because they were better able to um, uh, 
mobilise resources quickly because you could order people to do certain things. Like, you know, this is one of the one of the claims that was made by some of the uh, uh, behavioural scientists at the start of this process that, that we couldn't do in the UK what they had done in China, for example, in terms of locking down society. Um, but one of the things we need to remember that in authoritarian societies, at the start of this process, they tried to cover the whole thing up. They tried to hide it. Exactly the same thing happened in the Chernobyl crisis in the USSR. The initial reaction was to try to cover it up. So there is a value to an open democratic society, the way in which we all work together and pull together and use our collective expertise and experience and resources to try and address these things. Um, because I think that allows us to address these things in a much more effective way. If you have high levels of trust in government, then people are going to be more likely to do things that maybe they don't like, but they can understand why they need to be done. But in order to build that trust, people in leadership positions need to understand what it is that is driving uh, uh, people, what the concerns are, what their fears are, what the worries are. It's why, for example, I mean, they are saying that in the early stages, I think I would have preferred if the Department of Education here had perhaps uh, established a reference group of school principals. Um, so whenever we were thinking about things they, would, they needed to do, to talk to them to see, look, would this work? Have you any ideas that you think could work more effectively to get this, this shared goal? Working collectively like that, I think, is going to lead to better solutions. Again, that might be something that comes out of this whole this whole process. The um, Even the discussion about the role of scientific evidence in this has uh, really been very, very interesting as well, and how all these different bits of the jigsaw that are necessary to make a decision in a crisis like this, an emergency, how they should be fitted together to get the best decisions. Yeah, no, I think there's that's really, really important that you've got diversity in terms of people's views and opinions where, yeah. you know, if, you, if, if everyone's coming from the same model of thinking, are you going to get a better decision? Whereas if you can thrash things out, you can argue, you can debate, but ultimately, oh, I mean, take a decision, you'll take a decision that's, that's the, going to serve a better purpose. Yeah, the worst possible type of leadership group is where everyone's on the same page. Totally. Everyone, everyone thinks they, they understand the, the problem in the same way. You need to have dissident voices in the room that keep asking the awkward questions because mm. that's only reality checks on things. Um, I, I love West Wing. It's, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful television series. For me, it's almost like a leadership 101. <clears throat> and it's, uh, there's a lot of wonderful little aphorisms that Aaron Sorkin was responsible for, obviously, in writing the script. But one of them is um, talking about President Bartlett. One of the, his, the way he, he thinks about leadership is to surround himself with smart people who disagree with him. I think that's a really, really good uh, to work by. And I think it's really important. If you have people who ask awkward questions, you should um, uh, encourage that because that forces you to think through what you th what, whether what you want to do is actually the right thing to do. If you surround yourself with people who simply agree with you all the time, it's going to t it has the potential to take you on the road to disaster. Yeah, I think that idea of groupthink is one of the most dangerous sort of things we can. Yeah. You know, like history would even su suggest that with uh, Kennedy and Absolutely, the Bay Pigs yeah. and the Cuban <laughs> Missile Crisis and all that. With, I think, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're starting to get down a route here. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't expect. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, <laughs> um, so Tony, you mentioned there maybe about a turning point in uh, how children are taught. Can you just elaborate a wee bit on that? Well, I mean, I think there's there's going to be a rethink in all of this. I, at this point, I have no idea what direction it's going to go, um, but there is going to be um, there's going to be a, a rethink about what we use online environments. Um, there's 
there may well be a rethink in terms of uh, how we think about education delivered more in more flexible ways. The uh, it, it's, all of that certainly opens up possibilities of doing things in ways we've never done before. The uh, again, one of the things that's always impressed with, with teachers is a group of teachers, uh, quite a big group of teachers in Northern Ireland, who've been do, doing a lot of uh, uh, innovative work. You technology. This is a situation where that group should be encouraged uh, to sort of flourish and spread their ideas and talk to a lot more teachers because the, um, uh, the circumstances are going to be different and we need to, uh, you know, it's, there's, there, there, I suppose there, there will be a, a tendency, a sense of nostalgia to try and go back to the way things were before uh, to try and make act as if this crisis never happened. Sure there'll be some people who that would be their preference. Um, I strongly suspect that's not what's going to happen. Though. Um, the even the I mean the, the the school budgets have been run down inexorably for quite a few years. Schools have been under a huge amount of pressure. They've been very restricted in, in terms of what they could do because of these these sorts of pressures. That has got to change. Uh, we've got to recognise now the crucial role that schools play, and we need to resource them properly. And you've got to remember. The issues at the start of this whole crisis was the, the and the restoration of the shared education and the shared government was um, the executive was trying to sort out the the pay pay deal which had run on for years and years and years and was causing real problems in the way uh, education was was operating. So there's some some fundamental things like that need to we need to teachers have shown incredible commitment, incredible capacity, and an incredible ability to innovate in very difficult circumstances, we should use that energy uh, afterwards to try and encourage them to continue that process of innovation to see if there's ways we, we can take advantage of this unexpected circumstance to uh, to rethink and reimagine some of the ways in which we, we provide education. This already, I do a lot of work and have been doing a lot of work for many years with shared education partnerships, supporting schools working together in collaborative networks. Um, the, I think the um, uh, that Local sharing, local connections have, uh, I, I suspect, have been very important in many different places where uh, schools have been working together to try and deal with this particular crisis uh, as well. That's something that we should encourage to an even greater extent when we come out, of, come out of all of this so that we have an education service that works as a system for everyone, not just a series of disparate schools that each have responsibility for the kids who happen to be with them at a particular point in time, but not for all of the young people who live in the area in which the schools are based. Um, so those are the sort of things that I think are going to be opened up. I hope that the the, uh, the education system creates spaces for those conversations to happen and allows uh, for the possibilities of innovation to emerge. Um, it is possible there will be a shutdown of things to try and get back to the old ways as quickly as possible. I think that would be a, a real pity if that happened. Uh, and I'm pretty sure a lot of teachers will be keen to try and see how things can be done differently given the experience that they've had of, of dealing with this this uh, very strange and unusual set of circumstances brilliant no i think that's that's so so powerful there. um tony um 
I suppose just uh, I had yeah. mentioned or like I, what have I learned about myself in this time that I can now cook? Um, what um, <laughs> what what have you learned? I suppose through this uh, process in terms of, of about yourself even, and then uh, around education globally. Well, the uh, I've been I've been involved in quite a lot of conversations uh, uh, with people in different parts of the world, mainly around higher education issues. That I have to say that that's been a big point of discussion. Um, uh, with uh, colleagues in uh, right across right across the globe, um, and one of the things that we're because uh, we're we're thinking about the way in which universities are operating. Um, the uh, uh, there's a, there's some evidence in some places places of a little bit of a sense of panic uh, because you know, it looks like we could have a collapse of the international student market. Whether uh, as many uh, young people going to be prepared to to travel long distances to go to university anymore, while that's going to be a short-term uh, problem or a more longer-term problem. Um, the, uh, we, just, we just don't know, but there certainly is going to be an immediate problem this common academic year, because uh, an awful lot of UK universities rely on international students, and the expectation this year is that they're not going to be there, uh, which is going to create a huge hole in the... Uh, the budgets of, of, of universities. Um, so w one of the one of the dangers is that um, institutions try to solve this problem by themselves because there has been again a, this sort of drift in education generally about a, uh, a narrow one of purpose around um, around uh, budgets. There is a sense that higher education has become much more of a business um, and much more focused on the bottom line. Uh, rather than its civic and uh, democratic purpose and its role uh, uh, as major civic institutions in, in society. And so one of the things we're talking about is how can we think of the, how can we think of responses that are, are sectoral responses, trying to stabilise the higher education sector until we can get through this whole crisis and then see what the new world looks like and what needs to be done at that point, rather than making precipitous decisions right now. So there's, there's those sorts of conversations are, 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 are going on. And it's been interesting, partly it's one of the things that happens in a crisis. Suddenly things that have been taken for granted and you need to try and explore new ideas as quickly as you can. Uh, not not to try and make decisions too quickly because the, uh, in these circumstances, you've got you've to let a thousand flowers bloom, uh, but not pluck one and run with it too soon. You've got to see where... Um, uh, how circumstances develop. The uh, so there's been a lot of that that sort of stuff going on. Um, the other way, one of the advantages of being an academic is you spend a lot of time in your own head, uh, reading books, writing stuff, uh, thinking. And we've had, I've had a lot of time to do that over this last few weeks. Um, but it is it is it it's 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 nice still to be able to connect with with colleagues uh, through. Um, uh, through the social media and through the internet, it's been I've lot, talked to lots of teachers, and it's been good to do that. But I will uh, never take for granted again the old aphorism that there's nothing quite like warm body contact. Um, just through being with someone and giving them a hug or shaking their hand, just how one, how wonderful that is going to feel whenever we're able to do it again. Um, it really is. Uh, that's that's going to be a big big thing. I mean, I've, grandchildren living in the city and I haven't seen them on the web but I haven't touched them for just uh, uh, whole period and just giving them a hug again is going to be so so amazing uh, lots of things like that that we sort of just took for granted we're not going to take for granted after this experience 
Yeah, I think like even what you're saying there, like it was again. I've been reading a lot this last while, and um, I was reading a bit of research that had been done in Harvard uh, University, and it was the longitudinal study, and they were looking at um, they were looking to follow people uh, alumni for I think it was like six, seventy years, so long, long study with over eight hundred people through it, and they found that the key factor for health and happiness the number one factor was relationships and yeah. in that bracket felt human human connection uh, and even yeah. the neuroscience behind it the oxytocin that's released in terms of developing resilience like and i think that is we're seeing communities coming together uh, i think that could be long term actually could be an element where through this people are going to realize the power of coming together stronger that that we might actually develop a more resilient society through this yeah well even our notions of i mean if you think after the 2008 uh, crash a financial crash um we were sort of persuaded that it was really important that uh, we restored the banks quickly and let bankers and hedge fund traders and financiers maintain their big bonuses because they were really important to get the economy back going again. This time, what we think of as essential workers has changed completely. Essential workers are doctors and nurses and porters, uh, delivery drivers, truck truck drivers who are making sure the food gets to the supermarkets, people, people who work in the checkouts and super, supermarkets, cleaners. Those are the people that are keeping our society going. Um, and uh, so our notion of what essential work is, is going to change completely as a consequence of all of this. We're going to have a much greater realization of the key role of so many different groups of people, many who are very low paid and not in, in, in sometimes in quite fragile employment circumstances. That has all got to, that has all got got to change. We've got to change the, the some of the core values of our society to recognize that uh, how much we depend on people that that many have taken for granted for such a such a long time um and so yeah i mean that's and it comes down to this sense this wonderful sense of social solidarity that we're experiencing in this whole situation the way people are pulling together to try and get through all of this um and the way people are are uh, selflessly restricting their own life and their own lifestyle in order to keep others safe um, I think that's hugely important as well. And hopefully, hopefully we can maintain some sense of that spread afterwards. Um, this has happened, it's happened, it happens after wars, during, after the Second World War. Um, the, uh, there was, uh, I was reading something just today that during the Second World War, because it was food rationing um, and uh, state-organized healthcare, the, the, the life expectancy went up the, the nutrition that people were getting during war was improved because so much of it was uh, was organised by the state in order to um, uh, sort of to fulfil that sort of national purpose. And out of that came the National Health Service, came the expansion of education, later the expansion of higher education. All of those things got a bad press and got rolled back in the 1970s and 1980s. And we entered a world which was much more focused on a sort of doggy dog uh, competition and the winner takes all type of, type of approach and I, I i hope all of those those mantras are are thoroughly uh, critiqued in, in the, the new world that emerges from all of this yeah i think it's it's no coincidence that that generation after the war were labeled the great generation so um, yeah yeah before we end i suppose um any any key part messages running uh 
anything you'd like to finish on? Yeah, well, the, the most important thing is for people to keep well and keep calm. Um, I know in the, the early days of this, I was madly reading everything I could on social media to try and understand what was going on and try and understand, read all these papers and stuff. To, as if knowing a bit more would help you to deal with it better. Um, uh, and it doesn't really help. Um, listening to, to some of the news is good, but don't listen to the news 24 hours, uh, 24-7, because it just fills your head with stuff that, that can scare you. Uh, so, so keeping calm and keeping some sort of sense of perspective, I think, is is really, really important. When we're working with our kids and with our young people, giving them some sort of sense of routine, uh, allowing them to have fun, using this time and space a bit creatively, Help, teaching them how to cook and to bake <laughs> that's things like that will 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 stand with them for, forever um there's all this sort of stuff we can do to, to try and use the little spaces we're left to work work in as as smartly and calmly and creatively as possible i think is really the most important thing and it's also important to keep in mind we will get through this uh, this will end somewhere or another uh, the world that we will living will be different as a consequence of all of this but we shouldn't let others decide how that world should be shaped we should all play an active role in trying to shape the world in ways in which we think it's best for all of us uh, and if you can do that uh, while maintaining the spread of social solidarity the sense of this we're all in this together i think uh, we could turn what is tragedy into something an awful lot better um, certainly that's what i hope out of all of this yeah beautifully put um i think i suppose the overarching thing is in many aspects there is the opportunity for us to come out of this stronger than what we've went into it so uh in the long term so tony thanks a million i really really enjoy that and i'm sure our well, listeners will get a great insight well thanks thanks for the opportunity of the conversation uh, and uh talk again sometime okay ian i'd like to thank tony for his time and his insights in what it was a podcast that I thoroughly enjoyed and got massive benefit from. A reminder that we can be followed on Twitter at Hip Psychology or email or contacted through email at info at hippsychology.com. Our second guest in the third series will be Mr. Kevin McKernan, who is a primary school teacher and a Down senior footballer who works in St. Ronan's Primary School in Europe. So until then, keep our social distancing, wash your hands and stay safe. Thank you.